thank you so much for tuning in to Northridge Church Podcast. We're so glad to have you as part of our weekly service. For more information, please visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your hearts as we dive into God's Word. All right, you may be seated. Look to your friend next to you say, we serve a great God. Go ahead and tell them that. Man, I am so excited about these next few weeks. God has laid a, a series on my heart dealing with the Psalms, and I make it a habit, if you will, and I say that loosely because I love, love, love reading the Word of God, but I have made it part of my daily routine for probably the better part of six years to read at least a chapter in Psalm and one in Proverbs every single day. I do that in addition to maybe other things that I'm reading or, or things that I'm studying. Thank you, Chad. Uh, to ensure myself that I get at least two things in my life every day. One, of course, is that I want to get the wisdom. The Bible says that if any man lack wisdom, let he ask of God that he may give him uh, liberally. And I think we need wisdom. How many of you know in this day and time we need some wisdom from the Word of God? Aren't you glad of that? And, and we can find it clearly in all of the books of the Bible. You can open it up anywhere in the 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and you can find pieces of golden nuggets in God's wisdom. But I also read Proverbs, of, I mean uh, Psalms as well, to ensure myself that I'm giving God the praise that he so richly do. I love that psalm because it just speaks to the measure of God's greatness. I feel like in my life that... Praise is something that we are absolutely, unequivocally wired to do. I think that we are designed by God in His image and in His likeness, the greatest of all of His creations, that we are designed to place worth in Him. The very mention of His name in the Old Testament translates as I am means be. He's self-existing one. He thinks, and I want to say this without sounding like God is narcissistic, but he is God. He's fully God. He believes that he is as great as he is. We just have to convince ourselves that he's as great as he is. Amen? And that comes in the form of our worship. I think that we have in our culture, though, reduced worship to what we just saw. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That's not what worship is. This is merely one part of the total picture that we do in the form of worship. We place worship and worth in God. And that's a good way to remember worship. Worship is just saying, God, you are worthy. You are worth my adoration and my exaltation. And that's why it's so important for us that as these men and women up here are playing and they're singing, as I'm going to show you that the Bible is very explicitly clear that we're to do exactly what we're doing that you are not bystanders, you are not an audience. Because I want you to know today, and I hear these guys pray about this and talk about this, you are not their audience as far as they're concerned. They are merely worship leaders, they're participators, which again, leading worship is something that Asaph, for example, in the book of Psalms was. So all of these are mandates of Scripture. But you, when you come in here, the Bible says that if he, his name Jesus, would be lifted high, that he will begin to draw all men unto himself. Worship is something that we get to be a part of. Look to your neighbor and say, you're born to worship. Go ahead and tell them that. Matter of fact, look back to him right now and say, I believe you look a little better than you did before that song started. I definitely say that to my bride. You look mighty pretty today. You hot. I mean, that's the truth. You just, you fine. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to start a series Dealing with the book of Psalms, but more in the context of unfolding it 
rather than just preaching some sermon titles that kind of encapsulate what each psalm means, I'm going to identify psalms in the book of Psalms that have really related to and really helped me in my faith walk that I hope at the end of this will really encourage you and really help you as well. But I think to lay a foundation, I want to give you some really nuggets, of some cool nuggets of truth that I think will help you to realize how important the book of Psalms is to God. Number one, it is the ent- entirely the longest book in the entire Word of God, encapsulating about 43,000 words. Now, second to that is the book of Jeremiah, which is about 42,000 words. But if you want to, before I get corrected, and some of you students of the Bible will correct me, the book of Jeremiah is one single book, whereas the book of Psalms is a combination of many books, many authors. In fact, if you look, most of us think that David wrote all the Psalms. He did not. In fact, he only wrote 75 of the 150 Psalms. Uh, his son Solomon wrote two. Moses wrote one, which is Psalms 90. We see Asaph writing about 40-something. We see the sons of Korah, which are the door holders and the, and the table bearers and the temper, temple. And on and on and on. Levites and different people that would write the Psalms. Combining together, there are at least eight authors. In fact, there are 48 that are unknown. So we could have as many as 50, 55 different authors. But all that to say this. It's a combination of books. And if you look at it, it's just an incredible, incredible read. I mean, some of the things that we see in the Word of God, if you look at the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would go to the dead center to the 595th chapter in the Word of God. You will come to Psalm 117, which is also the shortest chapter in all of the Psalms, only containing two verses. If you want to go to the center of Psalms, you would come to 118 and verse 8, where it says, it's better to put trust in the Lord than it is to put confidence in man. How many of you believe that to be true? The centrality of our focus in our faith is that we don't trust man. We trust God with man. I say that to couples all the time in their faith walk with their husband or wife. You're not to trust your spouse because your spouse can inevitably let you down. But you can trust your God with your spouse. Amen? And I think that to be a centrality of it in Psalm 118 and 8. The longest chapter in in, in the entire Word of God is chapter 119, which has 176 verses speaking to the authenticity, the inerrancy, and the need for the entire Word of God. Therefore, we must understand and take away from that that worship and song, if you will, and hymns and melodies and, and all of the instrumentation and the voices and even dancing as David danced before the Lord in all of his spent splendor and glory, we must realize that God places an entirely amount of emphasis on the book of Psalms. Now, there are different kind of Psalms. There are those that are lamenting Psalms. Jeremiah, of course, who wrote also Lamentations, And he also wrote the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, where he was known as the weeping prophet, one who would literally, he's a crybaby, y'all, can I say that? But he's a crybaby because he's crying out on behalf of God's people who are running from God, who will never turn back to God. And so there are psalms of songs that we would sing whereby the writer would lament and cry. And I want to just submit to you today, you need to get a, a broken heart for the things that breaks the heart of God. To lament, to truly labor over the lostness of this world and the apostasy or the falling away from the truth of God's word. 
Also, we know that there are Thanksgiving Psalms. And in fact, Psalm verse, uh, Psalm chapter 90, written by Moses after they crossed the Red Sea, they're, they're praising him and thanking him for making a way where there was no way. We need to be thankful, not only on a time of Thanksgiving, although I love Thanksgiving, I love the food, I love all that comes with it, but how many of you believe we need to be thankful every single day? In fact, let me say this. Before you get up in the morning and cut on your Facebook, you need to stand to the face of the person who created, who redeemed, who has pursued you and still pursues you today and is able to keep that which he has given unto you. We need to give him thanks. Why don't we just give him thanks right now? Let's give him praise in the house. He's worthy. There also, and this is a little hard to, for some of us to get our head around, there are imprecatory psalms whereby people, the writers, are, are, are crying out for God to vindicate them and to, to curse them for the damage that they've done for the cause of God as well as to the person, the child of God. King David even wrote in one case that he would destroy his enemies and his foes, that they would fall to the left and they would fall to the right. And and that may not seem something that we should do because the Bible says in the New Testament, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We realize that we don't have to get even, that we're not warring against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places, that we're not to fight the person that you think to be your enemy today. But there are indeed Psalms whereby somebody's crying out to God, God, that you would destroy them because of all the harm and the detriment that they brought unto me. And many times we say pray for our enemies. And I've heard some of you pray for your enemies. And I, what an amazing thing. You're praying that they will fall down the steps in Jesus' name. That kind of prayer. That's not an imprecatory psalm. That's dangerous. But then there are also those penitential psalms. One that we would probably relate to most of all. And that is that where the sinner cries out in true repentance to God. That you would, oh, it just breaks my heart to think, that, that, to know that when I cry out to God, that he's there, that he hears me, that he's inclined to me, as I'm going to show you here in just a moment. To cry out to him in true repentance. To know that with a broken and contrite heart, God would in no wise despise that. I praise God for the Psalms that we have before us. And here's the big question. What do we do with that? What do, why is it important that we sing, that we, that we lift up holy hands? Mark, do I truly have to lift my hands before God so that, that I'm right with him? You do not. It's the posture of your heart. But I, sit, I sincerely submit to you. And I said this for years when my wife was a, was a singer and traveling. And, and it used to make me so uncomfortable just to be fully, fully transparent with you. It made me so uncomfortable when somebody next to me would just, just get a big old case of the can't help it. You know that person that's just... And they're singing and everything. And I'm like, oh, dude, chill, man. It's a great song. Let's clap. Don't do that. And then I realized one day that my hand just started to go up. And it wasn't even something that I intentioned to do. But rather, it was a reflection of what I was feeling in my heart. That I'm just saying, God, you're worthy. And I'm reaching out to him. And I want to touch him. Or maybe a posture of surrender. Do you know anywhere you go in the entire world, if you hold up both hands, it signifies surrender. Sometimes I feel like worshipers just need to lift up both hands to say, God, I surrender. One person got that. Praise God. That's cool. We'll get there. That's why we're preaching this. If I could help you this way, I wrote this down. I want you to let this marinate in your spirit today. As you turn to, uh, to John chapter 4, I'm going to give you our series text. And hold your place there. And we're going to be covering today in our text Psalm uh, 40. Psalm 40. So John 4 as our series text. And then Psalms 40 is our, is our text today for the sermon. But I want to read this statement. The glory of heaven... Is not that it will simply be a happy place, but that rather it will be a place where I get to truly encounter the fullness of a holy God. I want you to get that around, get your head around that. Heaven is not heaven because my precious Father will be there, though He will. 
Heaven is not heaven because I will see my grandmother and my grandfather again, though I will. Heaven is not heaven because I will get to go up to the apostle Paul and say, hey, tell me what it was like. In those days when you were on your missionary journeys and, and death was the result of many of the things that you did and ultimately you died at the beheading of Nero and how could you encourage people while you were in prison? That will not be heaven though. That will occur in heaven. Heaven will not be heaven because of the crystal sea or the tree of life or all the other things that we uh, connotate with heaven. Heaven is heaven because God will be there. Jesus will be there and the fullness of the Holy Spirit will be overwhelmed in us and all we will do is worship for all of the days for eternity. Holy Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. That's why it'll be heaven. And if we don't get that on earth as it is in heaven, I submit to you that we're missing one of the greatest aspects of being a child of God. Remember the woman at the well who came to sit down with Jesus and he told her about the, the men that he had, she had had in her life. And in fact, the woman, the, the, the man you live with now is not your husband. And she tried to change the subject. Well, where will we worship? Will we worship on this mountain? Will we worship on this place? Will we worship in Jerusalem? And he said these words to her, her which is our series text in John's gospel chapter 4 verses 23 and 24 listen what he says but the hour is coming he's basically saying look don't be worried about where you're going to worship but hear me but the hour is coming and now is look to your neighbor say it's time when the true worshipers everybody raise your hand up and just wave it at me like you just don't care keep waving it for a minute that's worship and you are a true worshiper watch what he says when the true worship worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking, he's looking for, he's anticipating, he is coming after those, what's this, seeking those who will worship him in such a manner. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you don't worship him in spirit, in the seat of your heart's emotion, of who you truly are to your core, because God is spirit, and you don't attach truth to that, which is founded in the word of God, if either of those are absent, you are merely acting on a physical emotion. Which, watch this, when the song is over, and the emotion begins to, to curve and, and the fervency of that begins to diminish. You will have absolutely no worship left in you. But I submit to you when you worship him in spirit. The core of who I am. Believes that he has died for me. He has pursued me. He loves me. No one can take me from his hand. That greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. When I place truth and I attach my spirit to his, watch what happens. Then worship never ends. It's something that is continuous. And even sometimes it has words. The true heartbeat, the true worshipers will rise. Now I want you to turn, if you will, to Psalm 40. And I want to give you this verse, this, these uh, three verses. This is absolutely one of the most powerful chapters within all the Psalms, which is the reason I want to let this be our launching pad as we dive into this aspect of worship. Psalm 40 is a psalm written by King David. And he's writing this perhaps after his exile, running from Saul. He was anointed as a young boy. Remember, he, of course, in the presence of Saul and all of the, 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 the Israelite army and, of course, the Philistine army. He's the one that with, a, with a five stones 
indicating grace, and he came under the power of God, not to, not to indicate he in and of himself had any power. That same boy who defeated Goliath, the giant that many thought could not be defeated, yet King David went under the power and the authority of the God of the universe, and he defeated him, and he cut his head off never again to have to deal with him again. And then he was anointed, of course, by Samuel to become the next king, the successor, if you will, of Saul. And then there was this animus between them, and he ran and he hid. And, and, and Jonathan, the son of Saul, actually worked with him and cohorted with him. And all the things that that went through, perhaps this was one of the occasions after that some 10 years of exile that he wrote this, sent indicating a psalm of praise, a psalm of thankfulness, perhaps some lamenting. Because if you read the entirety of Psalm 40, you'll see part one, which we're about to read, where he's thanking God for showing up and then down in part two he once again is crying out to him yet again in another pit and I want you to get your head around this because I want you to realize that he is in a place where he has no one walking with him he has to depend fully on the authenticity of who God said that he is and watch what he says he says these words I waited patiently on the Lord and he inclined unto me and he heard my cry aren't you glad that he hears the cries of his children aren't you glad of that He brought me up also out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock and he established my steps. And he has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Why? Many will see and fear and will trust the Lord. Let us pray together today. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray that you would enlighten us, that you would ignite us today for a passion for you. That you and you alone, your name would be lifted high. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. He says, I waited patiently. I want to bring a sermon title today. I'm singing a new song. How many of you cannot sing a lick? You couldn't sing if you tried your best, but you sound amazing in the shower. Or going down the road. You just, how many of you sing terribly, but in the car by yourself, you just let it rip? Okay. You can sing in here. Just, just sing. Let, get next to somebody. I get next to my wife, and I just start moving my mouth. And they say, Mark, you can sing. I go, I know. And it's really her. Number one, really quick, I'm going to unfold this. Why, when in the pit, do we have to wait patiently? Because the waiting is initiated by my crying out to God. Consider the times that you've cried out to God the loudest. Was it not in the time of desperation? Was it not in the time of, of hopelessness? Was it not in a time of without or the fear of death, or the fear of, uh, of sickness or pain, in a time of broken relationship. You see, maybe, maybe, maybe God allows us to go through the pit moments of our life so that we will cry out to him. Maybe, just maybe, we could experience less pits in our life if we would just be the continual, constant, perpetual worshiper. You know what's neat about a Rolex watch? A Rolex watch doesn't have to be wine, and typically it will never lose time because of the mechanics and the technology of it. It has on the second hand what's called a perpetual hand. It doesn't tick. I think there's too many ticking Christians, and I think we run out of power sometime, and we just stop, and somebody's got to wind us up. Do you know when we wound up? It's when we are hurting when we are lost, when we lose everything, we're on the outside. But we wind up then and we just cry out to God. We worship God. And then everything starts going smooth. And then we, we pause again. I like the Rolex. I don't have one, by the way. I, have a, I, I like the Rolex because it's perpetual. It's just a smooth transition. And it just keeps going. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That's the perpetual aspect of our prayer life, of our worship life that God wants to see. And I believe with all of my heart, according to this book, that sometimes, sometimes we go through the pit 
circumstances in our life. Just simply so that God, picture a pit, can close out all the other distractions in our life. We got nowhere to go but up and we lift our head in Psalms 3 and we cry out to a holy God. What if? What if we just continually praised him? What if we just continue to walk with him? Maybe it, we see ourselves as a good sinner. Maybe, maybe that's the problem in our culture today. That we want to be taught, oh, everything's going to be all right. You, you all right? You better, you better than her. Let me tell you something. The measure of my faith walk is not measuring how much more I know over you or how much better my walk is over his, his life or her life. The measurement is how did Jesus walk? Philippians 2 says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to truly measure the faith walk in which you're in? Look at how Jesus walked. That's what it means to be a Christian, to walk as Christ walked in this life. That's a Christian. A Christian is not a religion. It's not reduced to that. It's a manner in which we walk. The Bible says that they were first called Christians in Antioch to imply that Antioch, the people of Antioch, Antioch saw the disciples coming and might have very well looked at them and said, hey, they love like Jesus loved. They forgive like for Jesus forgave. They give and on and on and on. Hey, they walk like Jesus. What a great testimony when somebody says, you walk as Jesus walked. Maybe we see ourselves as good sinners, but maybe in our heart of hearts, we don't really admit that we need a Savior on a day-to-day basis. How many of you just know that you know that you know that you need Jesus in your life every second of every moment of every day? I want you to know that this waiting is not a passive waiting. I think sometimes we read the psalm and we'll get to this. Be still and know that I'm God. Just means that the Christian can just, you know, he's he's tired, he's frustrated, she's tired. Be still and know that I'm God. Mark, that means I can just sit down in the whole hum and just say, all right, God, move. I'm I'm waiting. Let me tell you something. The the, the waiting that, that, that King David is talking about in this pit is one of active participation, walking in absolute expectancy that God is about to do something big. And it doesn't, watch this, that kind of waiting doesn't come with it, the normal frustrations of waiting and nothing is happening. See, faith by definition is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That a true faith walk, I love this, is the absolute excitement of knowing that God is about to do something when the evidence is that it doesn't exist and will never come to pass. That is the true faith walk of a child of God. And the fact that in part two, we find David himself yet in a, another pit teaches us that. This is not the first pit he's ever been in, and it most definitely wasn't the last. In fact, in that same chapter, he comes to another place where he's in another pit, and he cries out. And he's basically, in the verbiage of it, he says, I'm asking you to show up again. I want you to look to your neighbor right now. Go ahead and look to him now. Say, Grab their hand and look at him and say, if you did it one time, he'll do it again. I want you to know that waiting patiently on the Lord is waiting with eyes open, hearts abandoned, knowing that in his perfect timing, he will do what he said he will do. Do you know why it's a problem for us? We want God to show up when we want him to show up. That hit somebody, didn't it? How many of y'all are just, just be honest or not patient? And then we do this crazy little thing. Lord, just give me patience. And he does. He will make you wait. That's how you gain patience. 
John chapter 11, though, I submit to you that one of the greatest illustrations of this is when Mary and Martha went to him and said, Oh, Jesus, come. I want you to come from Bethany. I mean, come from where you are and come to Bethany. And I want you to heal my brother Lazarus. He's sick. And remember, he's your friend. We, we hang out together. God, show up, Jesus, because we believe that you have the voice of life. Heal him out of that sickness. And the Bible says that, that Jesus tarried yet still three more days. Why would he do that? I submit to you that the greatest of all the things was not that he showed up when they wanted him to, but that he would allow him to die, show up late, and then step out and say, Lazarus, come forth. The greater glory was the fact that they had to wait. Sometimes in our life, we say, God, show up, and and our our life is surrounded by a timetable. You don't believe that? You wait to about 12.15. Y'all be like, oh, my gosh, that joker is going to 12.30. And just so y'all know, I was taught in Bible college, if you do this, I have three minutes to the time. I'll keep going. I'm kidding. God transcends time, so God is not moved by your time. He's moved by his timing. Wait a patient, Lord. Number two, really quick. Our expectant waiting brings forth God's response. Not just the whole hum of do nothing waiting, but expectant waiting. And, and I, I want to tell you something. I believe you could even cry as you pray that. Because I want you to hear me. I have, I have literally praised God in some of the lowest, lowest places of my life, speaking truth over my life when I in my flesh did not even buy it. But I said it because I believe there's life and there's death in the power of what we speak. God, I'm praising you for what you've taken from me. And God, I'm believing that you're going to do it. And the whole time I'm going, I don't know what you're doing, God. I don't understand it. I certainly don't like it. Just saying it and forcing your flesh to line up with your spirit. My marriage is falling apart. I don't know what to do. You're speaking that over your relationship. Here's what you need to start doing. God, I know it looks bad right now, but I am believing that you're going to come in and you're going to change that jack wagon. He's going to be the husband that I deserve. That's spiritual. Y'all think about it. Waiting patiently is expecting for God's response. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who, say it with me, diligently seek after him. Listen, God doesn't want somebody to just haphazardly cry out to him. Hey, God, fix this. All right, God fixed it now. I'm backing away. Hey, God, fix this. Hey, God, intervene. Hey, God, give me this job. God is not a Walmart or a drive through God is somebody who is holy and he is perfect and he is righteous and he's majestic. And when we go to him, we say, God, it's me again. God, I'm calling out to you. God, I'm crying out to you. I'm believing you're about to show up and do a work. Show me your glory. God told the prophet Jeremiah, one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah. He told him in Jeremiah, I think it's 33.3, he says, cry unto me. Call unto me. Words are interchangeable, crying and calling in that context. Call out to me and I will answer you. And I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. I believe somebody in this room here today needs to hear this. You need to cry out to God for something you have never seen before. Listen, it don't take any faith to believe that he can do something he's already done. The great faith movement is when we cry out to God for the impossible, the supernatural. Remember I talked to you a couple weeks ago about that, living a supernatural life? Call on me. He's always listening. I I love 
Also, Psalm 51, and I'll get into that with you guys. When David was at perhaps one of his most broken points of his entire life. In his sin with Bathsheba. He could have had anything he wanted and he took Uriah's only wife, his only greatest possession. He took her, he came in and he had sexual relationship with her. Out of that birth a son, God told him through Nathan the prophet, I'm going to kill your son. He later had another son, Absalom, who was an absolute uh, tragic person in and of himself, just detested his father. Finally, he ultimately had Solomon who went on to build the temple of God. You just see God's continual perpetuating hand in his ministry. But at the moment of complete desperation, he begins to cry out to God. And I'm going to share this with you in a few weeks, Psalm 51, in which case he finally comes to a part and he says, God will in no wise despise a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not turn away. So maybe that brokenness and that contrite heart is found most evident in the pitfalls of life. Thirdly, and this is where we really pick up some momentum And I'm just going to go quick. I'm going to get the band to come back up. I want you to hear this. God's response to King David in this moment of desperation was both personal and also timely. God will never show up one second before he's decided when it's time for him to show up. But I want you to know today, we don't serve an impersonal God, but rather a very personal one. The Bible says if we have only hope in this world, we are among men most miserable. I have a hope, a hope that will maketh not ashamed. I have a hope in Christ. I have a hope that God is personal. He's timely. And I love what it says. He says, I waited patiently on the Lord, and he inclined unto me. How many of you know what a recliner is? How many of you can't wait to get home to your recliner? Reclining is not getting up. Reclining is backing away, settling in for the day. You know, cutting on the football game and asking everybody to be quiet and then going to sleep in three seconds into the game. That's a recliner. They call it a lazy boy. That'll preach. It's interesting, the word here, he didn't say, he came to me. He said he inclined. Oh, my goodness, think about this. The, the indication here is that he didn't sit back and go, David, seriously, you again? But rather, he leaned in to David with full attention and attentiveness and concern and care. He, he inclined unto me and he heard my cry. I love what it says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 55 where it talks about Stephen who was the first martyr in, in Christian theology. He was the first one to ever die specifically for faith in Jesus Christ. He was the first deacon. He was the first martyr. And I love what it says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 55. As he was in that place being stoned to death, his clothing had been ripped from. He was in absolute total shame. And they threw the clothing that they had tore off at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. And he threw him at his feet. And I love the way that, that, that Stephen married his words, if you will, with a messianic prophecy in Psalm 22, where he says, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them, for they don't know what it is that they're doing. And then it's Acts 7 and 55 it says but Stephen now as he was being stoned full of the Holy Spirit looked up in heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the hand of God 
the only time other than in Revelation where we see or hear Jesus stepping and not seated at the right hand of the Father, which is absolute authority, ruling and reigning over the affairs of this entire world. He stand up. He inclined to Stephen. He inclined to, to, to David here in Psalm 40. He leaned in. He was as if he was saying, you have my full attention. When was the last time in your life, speaking metaphorically, when you had Jesus' full attention and you have him lean into your cry? Do our prayers motivate do our, does our worship encourage? Does our, does our worship ignite? Or is it just this flippant singing of songs? The true heartbeat of worship is just really moving the hand of God into response. He said he brought me up out of a horrible pit. He didn't just, he didn't just I love this. He didn't just say, come on up, I got you. You know, he told, he told uh, Peter when he, when he sunk, he reached down and grabbed his hand and he said, come to me. He brought him up out of a horrible pit. If you look that word up in, in the language, the original language, in the Hebrew language, you'll realize it means a place of, of noisy distraction. It was literally a, a picture of, of a pit whereby beasts would fall into it as a pitfall, set as traps, and you would hear them screaming and growling and snarling and crying out in a pit. They would either wait till they died or they would go and take a stone and throw it on top of their head to put them out of their misery and then pull them out, and that's, you know, killing that, enemy, that, that predator. In, in this particular situation, is Peter, is, is, is Psalm, the psalmist David crying out to God. It's a weeping, it's crying out, waiting with expectancy, yet absolutely broken, absolutely destroyed. And I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 59, that his arm, thank God, is not too short that it may not save. That his ear is not too dull that it cannot hear. That he is listening to you and he's listening to me. He's listening for us. In fact, when we're crying out to God, the Bible says that Jesus, who is our advocate, is also our intercessor, making prayers and utterances that you and I can't hear, praying on our behalf to God the Father. And when we're crying out, God save me, God save me, God save me out of that horrible pit, we really realize at that moment that we're in a place, perhaps the miry clay, that every time we try to help ourselves, we just sink further and further into desperation of hopelessness I've been there I don't know if you have I see it in the life of people who are addicted to all forms of things whether it be pornography whether it be drugs whether it be alcohol whether it be pride addiction and addiction does this to you it, it, what's, what's, what's satisfactory here is no longer satisfactory the next day and the next week and you just keep going you keep just working yourself in that pit of despair and brokenness and that, that miry clay that rests at the bottom having absorbed the moisture that perhaps fall through rainfall or subterranean waters perhaps and it's just like tacky silty clay and the more you try to climb out the deeper and deeper and deeper you go so I'm so glad that he says he brought me up. You know what that tells me? That tells me he got in the pit with him and he pulled him up and he grabbed onto him and he hugged him and he embraced him and he, and he just stepped out of it himself. He didn't just say, hey, come on, you can do it. You can work for you. You got yourself in. If I was God, I would look down sometime and say, hey, you got yourself in that pit. Aren't you glad that God is not that way? God says, I'm coming to where you are. He inhabits. Here it is. He inhabits. He dwells among the praises of his people. 
And I love this. And here's where I'm going to end. He sure my position in Him. He set my feet upon a rock. He changed from my state of guilt to pardon. My corruption to holiness. My lostness to foundness. My enslaved condition to a redeemed position. He set me on firmness. He set me on a sure footing and a foundation. I don't want to be today, child of God, like the, wise, the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when the storms of life come, it just washed away the entire dwelling. I want to be like the wise man who set my house on a rock. As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. I want to sure my footing. I want to know that I know that I know that I'm standing on the promises of God that are yes and amen in Him. I don't have to have man's appearance. I don't have to have man's confidence. I don't have to have man's accolades. I know in whom I trust and I am certain that He's able to keep me to that very day. Do you know that today? That you stepped out on the sure footing. He took Him out. He put Him on a rock and here it is. And He put a new song in my mouth. He established my steps. He's basically saying this to you, child of God. How many of you are saved, you're redeemed, born again, children of the Most High God? Sin has no longer got you captive. If you feel like you're stuck in sin today, one of two things are going on. You are absolutely not a child of God or you are choosing to simply stay in it yourself. But when my God redeemed me, he took me out and he set me on a rock. Bible says don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage whereby Christ has set you free oh yeah you can jump back in that pit but why would you there's a song by Big Daddy Weave that really did not hit me until I heard it many 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 times and I really got into that song of I'm redeemed I've been set free do, do you know what freedom really means? I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Steve, that freedom in America doesn't mean what it means to somebody in Russia when they're made free. Do we wonder why people are trying to cross the Rio Grande and come into I know, I know there's, a, there's a lot of hostility in that conversation about people just walking across the border. Why do they want to get here? They want to be free. And we're free. And do we really care? Do we really even know that we're free? Free from sin? Free from bondage. Free from hopelessness. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of the redeemed. A song of the free. A song of the sureness of the path. The sureness of my foundation. The sureness of my hope. The sureness of my future. It has been settled. To telestai in the Greek means it is finished. One of the things Jesus said on the cross, it's settled. Your debt is paid. I'm the redeemed. I'm going to ask Keith to sing. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads all over the room. If God so moves you, if God so moves you, I want you to lift your hands. I want you to stand if you feel compelled to do so. Do you know Jesus today is the Lord of your life? If you don't, pray with me right now. Father in heaven, I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for me. Today I ask him to be the Lord of my life. Jesus, will you save me? Help me to live for you. Until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen and amen.